episode 55 of Sassmouth Dames podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. We moved into our house seven years ago. A few months later, a strange thing happened with the winter thaw. Once our kitchen floor began to warm up, which is like a block of ice from November to February, we were overrun with ants. At first you think, well, of all the pests to have in the house, Ants are probably as good as it gets. I mean, it's not like having roaches or, Joan forbid, something with a tail. But there were so many of them. They were militant, organized, and relentless. I could not leave a speck of food on any surface. First, they were only on the floor. Then they started climbing up to the counter. They swarmed over a biscuit on a plate. The ants climbed up the counter and marched inside my juicer to collect a few drops of apple juice that remained. One day, after a dog walk in the bucketing rain, I had hung up my wet coat on the shower door in the first floor bathroom, and when I went in about an hour later, there was a long trail of ants across the floor, up the wall, and into my coat pocket to scavenge the dog treats I had in there. Now listen, I'm a vegetarian, I'm besotted with animals, and I loathe commercial insect spray. But the natural stuff wasn't working. Nothing worked. Each day was a race against time to prepare, cook, serve the food, and then wash up before the ant battalions deployed. All the food had to be kept in the fridge. The ant convoy for liver treats in my coat pocket was probably the last straw. I went to a hardware shop and bought ant traps. The lad in the shop assured me the traps worked. He said to fill them from a bottle he handed me that contained an ultra-sweet syrup, which they could not resist. He said the syrup was loaded with strong poison. I continued my campaign of no crumbs, nothing for them to eat. Everything went into the fridge. There were a lot of ants. Soon, they began to eat the poison cordial. They devoured it. I filled and refilled the trays and the plastic traps with the deadly syrup. About a day later, the ants had changed. I felt sick and guilty looking at them. The ants didn't just eat the toxic syrup and keel over. No, they changed first. Physically, the ants looked frazzled, wiry, pointy, They no longer marched in an orderly formation clear of purpose with a destination. Their colony was in chaos. They ran over each other, tore bits off one another. They ate each other. They were driven witless and became monsters before they died off. They are small things. Still, I'll never forget what they looked like, the transformation once they were eating poison, poison they could not resist. Since then, I have seen two things that remind me of those ants that became something else, something cruel and unhinged. The first thing that reminds me of the army of deranged ants is Donald Trump's signature. It has that crackled, pointy, crazed quality. 
The second thing is Ruby Gentry's brother, Jewel Corey, played by James Anderson. At first glance, his hair looks vaguely curled, but really it seems pointy. His eyes have a glint of sadism. He attacks his sister with a frenzied glee. Jewel would like to see her suffer, tear bits from her. He's poisoned by the Bible. For other men in the picture, it's money. Either way, it's about controlling women. Jewel is cruel and vicious, and the other men aren't far off. Ruby Gentry was the first Jennifer Jones picture I ever watched. I was a teenager at the time. I was blown away by a woman filled with an overwhelming desire. It's the one among her film credits that I return to most often and have viewed dozens of times. There are so many subtleties, so many details to linger over, which balance out the big moments of Southern grotesque. Now I read it less as a question of Ruby's libido, and more so about her desire to resist control. She longs to be self-defined and cast off the shame that men impose, whether because she's a poor girl from the swamp or because she loves a man who only cares about himself. Most of all, I read Jennifer Jones in this picture as a high-fashion destroyer goddess. She restores the swamp. Men denounce the swamp because they can't use it or turn a profit from it. Ruby Gentry returns the water to the land. She doesn't ruin progress, as the men say. She saves the land from nitrate chemicals men use to plunder it with quick cash crops. Boke may look like a swoon merchant, but he's just another grubby developer. So many people compare the film to the work of Tennessee Williams, but it seems more aligned with the Southern Gothic found in Flannery O'Connor's work. If this play were by Tennessee Williams, Ruby would have been maimed, institutionalized, or six feet under by the end. But Ruby Gentry was written by Sylvia Richards, who also wrote the screenplay for The Secret Behind the Door from 1947 and Joan's Second Possessed from 1947, and Rancho Notorious, among others. Sylvia's shrink convinced her to be a friendly witness for HUAC, and her career was finished once she testified. As it happens, the picture opens with an, insu- with an assurance that Ruby is a survivor. The men are dead and buried. She lives to tell the tale. Audiences don't usually get to see women presented like this. It's usually that the rugged loner is a man. In other pictures made in the same year in 1952, we see men who are islands, self-contained units, who stand apart from society, self-sufficient, strong, and resolved. In High Noon, Gary Cooper plays a sheriff who stands alone against a gang of criminals. The townsfolk lack the courage to take up arms and fight the gunslingers alongside the lawman. Cooper is beleaguered. He's numb as he does his duty to law and order that seems empty and without meaning. In Viva Zapata, Marlon Brando rides off alone on horseback to die as a romantic national hero. Eve Babbitts writes about the impact his performance as the rugged loner had on her as a teenager in her essay collection, Eve's Hollywood. It was like an erotic imprint for her. In Bend of the River, Jimmy Stewart shepherds witless pioneers out west. On horseback, he has the thousand-yard stare of a man long used to a life apart. 
He shoulders the burden of his duty of care like many men in the Western genre. In Clash by Night, Paul Douglas captains a fishing boat, just like Ruby Gentry does. The difference between them is palpable. His solitude makes him lonely, and then a cuckold, when he can't identify from which jungle Barbara Stanwyck hails. When we first see Jennifer Jones as Ruby Gentry, set in the present tense, after the events have occurred, she's behind the wheel of a ship. She's more romantic and seems more of an iconoclast, the rugged loner, than the men presented in similar films. Her appearance is styled down with a captain's cap, pulled over gray hair, a dirty face, no makeup, a black polo neck, and jeans. You only need look at her and know she's been through the wars. Jennifer Jones always seems best at projecting something hidden in reserve, that she's a band apart from the society she inhabits. Alone behind the ship's wheel, charting calm waters with a quiet dignity, Ruby carries on. She's in charge, remote, self-complete. It's a look that announces a character has lived, had experiences, which set her apart. It's a look that says she has endured. As the ship's captain, she's the hero. Before we learn much about her, we know from a voiceover that she was born on the wrong side of the tracks, an outsider. This explains Ruby's position as the loner who runs the fishing boat. One of the most notable things about Ruby's conflict with society is that it's represented almost entirely by men. Most often, the usual depictions of snobbery and class conflict in women's pictures almost always involved catty women, but here Ruby's detractors are men. I'm thinking of the lady politics in, say, These Glamour Girls from 1939, for example, where the posh coeds freeze out Lana Turner because she's a taxi dancer. Or that great scene in California when the women of the town heave Barbara Stanwyck into the street so that she lands ass over tea kettle in the muddy path outside of a saloon. Viewers see very little of the special brand of psychological exclusion and those games women conduct among their own in Ruby Gentry. Ruby Gentry is told by men she doesn't belong, she isn't good enough. They discuss her sexual allure among themselves, her history, her prospects. They judge, denounce, and shun her. A proper woman's picture Ruby Gentry reminds women that men are the gatekeepers and the rule makers. King Veter's film doesn't waste time on lesser snubs by Tracy, a rich girl in white gloves, played by Phyllis Avery. Vitor locates Ruby's antagonists to the source of power, the hunters, businessmen, the local press, the rich men and formerly rich men, the Bible nuts, the developers. Ruby marries one man who calls her a tramp, and she pines for another who calls her a swamp rat. Neither are worthy of her. The class conflict in the picture, that Ruby is from the backwoods swamps and poor, takes time to develop. When we first see the hunting party at her father's lodge, they don't look like affluent men necessarily. In their hunting gear, with everyone in chambray or flannel, sturdy jackets and boots, they look like they could be Ruby's kin. Backlit in the doorway, 
local Jim Gentry, played by Carl Malden, stops to ogle her with a new doctor in town. She stands there. Jim quips, don't let it shake you, Doc. It's just anatomy. To them, she's a form, a body, pure anatomy. They can't begin to fathom how much more she is than that. Men want a tidy definition. Ruby wants the world. Ruby stands there letting them look. She tucks in her pelvis, drawing it back with as much erotic promise as Jean Harlow in a silk bias-cut gown. Ruby wears turned-up jeans and a plain short-sleeved jumper, but she's a standout in casual clothes. Her posture is regal. She wears a bohemian collection of silver bracelets on her arm, a wide-studded belt cinched at the waist, and a pair of ankle-strapped hirachis. In the swampland, Ruby's accent is thick as tar, deep, coarse. She nuzzles a shotgun as though it were a darling kitten. On his way in, Jim hands her a box of sachets from his wife. Rather than scoff, Ruby's touched and bemused by what she would ever do with little packets of scent. Sachets, did you ever, she replies. Letty's sachets are less useful than a pencil as a fishing pole. She's no tomboy, though. Ruby is an earth goddess. She looks so vital, pouring coffee and serving at the table, that all the men look dour, aged, and unhealthy. Well, except for Charlton Heston, who plays Boke. The men are dinosaurs of an old world. Ruby doesn't use any of the coquette's tricks with Boke. She's not passive and demure. Rather than bat lashes, giggle into her hands, or whisper saucy remarks, Ruby uses a more direct method to gain Boke's attention. She stabs her fingernails into his cheek and pulls them down to his chin like a clam rake. The sound effects resemble a sheet being torn in half. Her action declares, how dare he waste time on something as pedestrian as dinner? She wants his undivided attention. Ruby has waited five years for him. We know that he's slow and self-absorbed because Boke didn't learn the lesson he should have learned five years ago when Ruby stabbed him with her oyster knife. Don't take her for granted. Boke is arrogant, tall, sure of himself, so he figures he can take his time. Later, she cries at him that she's not just a North Carolina dame. Ruby is more than that. She contains multitudes. In another flashback, we see how Ruby moved to town when she was 16. Her parents thought she was wild for stabbing Boke with the oyster knife, but she was only confused about what becoming a woman means. What do you do when a man just makes a grab for you? How do you keep control over your body? Letty, played by Josephine Hutchinson, is the sickly wife of some local financier, Jim Gentry. She tried to give Ruby the education a woman needs in the South, which amounts to two things, how to wear clothes and how to order about the servants. Letty sickly. She's part of an old order dying out too, one where women are decorative and don't do much but take to a sick bed and make sachets. It makes perfect sense to me that when she's in Letty and Jim's house, Ruby's voice changes along with her clothes. Clothes make the woman. Ruby is reserved, not exactly demure. 
woven into the wool skirt Ruby wears are the lessons Letty imparted. If you sent me to Philadelphia wearing a miniskirt and a pair of brothel creepers, I can't account for what would happen to my accent, but I'm pretty sure there would be a noticeable difference. I would revert to my original settings. As Ruby, Jennifer Jones is adept at code switching. Isn't that the survival tactic she developed to make her way in Hollywood from Phyllis Isley to Phyllis Walker and then the star persona David O. Selznick imagined as Jennifer Jones? She became an expert at adapting to the situation and men's expectations. It made her stronger, this chameleon-like ability to fit the scenario, the context. It's magic, the modern hallmark of witches. Ruby did not have to settle for being let one thing that men asked her to. She didn't have to choose between the swamp and high fashion and the big house. She could be both, in the same way that Jennifer Jones was also Phyllis. Molly Haskell is spot on when she argues that Ruby Gentry is all libido in her groundbreaking text on woman's pictures, From Reverence to Rape. The difference between Ruby and Boke is that his libido is disconnected from anything but his body, the physical urge of the moment. But Ruby's libido connects her to the larger world. It makes her bold and brave. Through her sexuality, Ruby can envision change in a different world, one where she belongs. Boke can't see anything further than his dick in the mud. The men condemn Ruby. One says she brought trouble from the minute she sashayed in from the swamp, thinking she was good as anybody. But she's better than that. The next time you're having a bad day, or the general annoyance of living in a man's world gets you down, pop Ruby Gentry in the DVD player, or watch it online at the Russian website. The scenes after Jim's death should cure what ails you. In the Gentry Library, Joined by her father and the new doctor in town, Ruby picks up the phone, which rings incessantly with townsfolk calling her a murderer. Horns honk outside like a caravan of an invading army. They shoot out her front door lights. As nice as Carl Malden seems as Jim Gentry, his wife Letty wasn't dead a wet week before he proposed to the girl who came to live in his house when she was only 16 when Letty insisted Ruby needed woman's care. I like Carl Malden just like everybody else, but Jim is creepy. When I put my feet up and watch Ruby take her revenge on the narrow-minded men in town, I feel as restored as if I had a spa weekend. Dressed in immaculate black, Ruby's widow's weeds are exquisite, styled with a black scarf under a wide-brimmed hat, large black sunglasses, a high-neck black jersey dress, gold hoops, and a simple gold choker. She takes it all. She calls in banknotes, serves writs, repossesses trucks, closes factories, and the local paper. She floods Boke's lands. Ruby Gentry wreaks havoc, lays waste to their business, their grubby commerce, which is cheap and low. She is the destroyer goddess fresh from the runway, and it feeds my soul. I can never get enough of a glamorous woman destroying men. Of course, Jewel interrupts her glory. 
he raises his head like one of those frazzled, crazed ants. Throughout the picture, Jewel had quoted what the Bible had to say about how women are evil. He sang morbid songs about damnation and told her to beg forgiveness on her knees. Fat chance. He wants to control her with religion rather than sex or marriage. Twisted and cruel, Jewel is also armed with a shotgun. But Ruby crawls from the swamp and heads for the sea. At the end, when we return to the present day, to Ruby as the captain of the fishing boat, her quiet dignity tells me what she came to learn. The men like poisoned ants will always return, but the swamp and the sea abide. In his autobiography, In the Arena, published in 1995, Charlton Heston had nothing but praise for Jennifer Jones. He called her a pro. He said she was the only actress he ever worked with who went without makeup on screen, that he could see her skin go pale or flush with emotion in a scene. During one scene, when Jennifer had to strike him, he told her to really let him have it. Jennifer belted Heston so hard that she injured her arm. Heston recalled that the silver bangles were added to her costume to disguise the bandage Jennifer wore underneath. He's right on a big screen TV especially. If you look closely at Jennifer's wrists, you can see the bandage underneath the bracelets. Heston wrote that in three years he made 10 pictures and that Ruby Gentry was one of the best. Heston's wife Lydia called his role as Boke the first in his line of playing hero heels. Heston said of his part, I was the rich white son of a bitch who done her wrong. Aptly put. Director King Vidor would not sign on to do the picture until he had it written in his contract that David O. Selznick would never set foot on the set, nor would Selznick be permitted to view the daily rushes or production footage while they were shooting the picture. King Vidor had walked off the set during Duel in the Sun, the Selznick production starring Jennifer Jones from 1946. He had had enough of the producer's interference. Selznick had been given guarantees that for Ruby Gentry, he would have approval of the script, Jennifer's leading man, and all the production still photographs from the film. He stayed off the set. King Vidor wrote in his book on filmmaking, When I first saw Jennifer, I was impressed by the fact that her emotional reactions registered so clearly on her face. It is difficult to define this quality. Perhaps plasticity does it. Vidor spoke about his method of working with Jennifer during Ruby Gentry. He would talk to her about the story, what the mood was for the character in each scene. With gentleness and patience, a director could expect a sensitive and intriguing performance from her, he said. There was no excuse for a director who couldn't keep her in the proper mood and get a wonderful performance from her, Vidor wrote. In Gene Stein's best-selling book on Hollywood, West of Eden, An American Place, she devotes a chapter to Jennifer Jones. The chapter, though, is just a collection of interviews with people commenting about Jennifer Jones with no context, follow-up, or analysis from the author. The quotes just stand on their own. Much of it seems dated and sexist. 
Why should we value Lauren Bacall's opinion that Jennifer should have been home having sex with her husband rather than seeking therapy with a doctor in a European clinic? Really, that's her advice. Sleep with your husband and you'll be grand. Lauren Bacall warned Jennifer that leaving a desirable guy like Selznick, (coughs) cough, cough, alone would make him weak for another woman to poach. Would you call a woman a friend if she said that to you? An excerpt from a letter Jennifer sent Selznick included in the book repeats the advice Bacall offered. I sighed when I read it because the book was published just two years ago in 2017. Stein includes quotes from people who characterize Jones and familiar cheap stereotypes about faded, tragic beauty. In a section from Yuki Takai, Jennifer's former hair and makeup stylist, he says that she paid him $40,000 a year to do her hair and makeup. He states that he spent four hours every day on Jennifer's hair and makeup. Jennifer didn't pay Yuki to make her look beautiful for the press or even for her friends. She did it for her third husband, Norton Simon, who happened to be a wealthy man who paid for the beauty treatments. Yuki quotes Jennifer as explaining, Norton deserves her me to be beautiful. Then Yuki claims that Jennifer went to bed every evening with a full face of makeup in case she had to go to the hospital in the middle of the night. Someone might take a picture of her and she needed to have makeup on. Why do publishers continue to print tabloid appraisals of women from the silver screen? It sounds like something you would read in Confidential Magazine. The portrait of Jennifer cast in this book is deeply unflattering, as some kind of former adult beauty clinging to delusions of youth and stardom. So what if she liked to sleep in makeup or spend money on a stylist? I would wager that current celebrities spent far more on their daily regimen than what Jennifer Jones spent, even after you adjust for inflation. Like the Kardashians don't spend at least four hours a day grooming. And I might note last month in June 2019, former French Vogue editor and style expert Karine Reutfeld gave an interview where she advised women to sleep in their makeup to achieve the perfect smoky eye look. The finger wagging about Jennifer Jones doing the same is petty and tawdry and cheap. If a woman spent the bulk of her life adhering to the rules of glamour, why should we consider it sad or tragic or morbid that she continues as she ages? The tragic beauty stereotypes here go hand in hand with the bad mother criticism. Funny how we never read scathing takedowns of men in Hollywood who are bad fathers. Two of Bing Crosby's sons took their own lives, and yet that never seems to interrupt his legacy as a beloved performer. Stein writes from a critical lens as conservative as a cleric in the Sunday pulpit. Jennifer Jones deserves better than what's said about her. Thanks so much for listening. If you're enjoying Sassmouth Dames, why not do me a solid and leave a nice review on iTunes? Join me next time for episode 56 when I talk about Mary Astor and Dodsworth from 1936. Thanks very much.